Welcome back to Three Decades of Tragedy, History of the Thirty Years' War. So last time I covered the Second Battle of Steinau, which resulted in a stalemate-esque situation, Wallenstein not able to assist Bavaria with the Swedish threat, and the Swedes driven back, and this whole not attacking the Swedes would actually lead to his downfall, the dominoes being set up for them to fall, as I established last week. Also, I'm feeling, not under the weather, but stuffy, runny nose, so if I sound a bit off, that's why. But without further ado, let's get started. With Wallenstein fleeing tonight, as I established last week, he took a small contingent of troops that were still loyal to him. He left behind most of the slow-moving infantry and artillery, taking around 1,300 men, calling on Butler to bring 900 dragoons to reinforce him, aware he was probably going to be chased by his former commanders. However, Butler sent a confessor to tell Piccolomini that he was loyal and only followed Wallenstein under duress and probably as part of the plan. So he could basically avoid any punishment if things came to, you know, an end where Wallenstein was dead and people getting charged. But Wallenstein had moved faster than the conspirators expected, then planning on a longer-term plan or at least like a longer time to deal with their situation. So they had to scramble, Piccolomini leading around 2,000 cavalry to chase them down. But he stopped at Mies, claiming he was too tired to go further. But I think it's because he wanted to avoid what was going to happen, which I will describe later. Wallenstein's small force arrived at Eger by late afternoon on February 24th. Gordon, that Protestant conspirator I mentioned last week, gave Wallenstein lodgings in his house, which was clearly setting up a trap for him, as I established he was one of those people who were willing to assassinate the former general. Wallenstein's men were forced to camp outside due to Gordon's troops already being in town, and Wallenstein's second-in-command tried to convince the local commanders to stay loyal to Wallenstein, but it was too little too late, although they did act conflicted, some of them probably genuine, some of them faking it. But even if they had personal issues with the upcoming betrayal, Siding with Wallenstein would be professional suicide, and it would implicate them all in Wallenstein's crimes, or at least supposed crimes. They also wanted to limit the help Wallenstein could get, so they separately invited five of his commanders to a private dinner, predicting that Wallenstein would turn the invitation down. That night, at a prearranged call at 6pm, Butler and a group of dragoons burst into the dinner, with calls of Long Live Ferdinand and Who is a Good Imperialist? There was a brief but violent fight, the conspirators massacring commanders as tables were thrown and people were stabbed and all that. And this was followed up a few hours later, when the house Wallenstein was saying at was secured on the outside, and two assassins, Devereux and Fitzgerald, rushed into the house, Devereux taking upstairs while Fitzgerald secured the doors so Wallenstein couldn't escape. Devereux, using a half-pike as his sword had broken and he needed to find another weapon, rushed into Wallenstein's room. Wallenstein, who was half-dressed due to getting ready for bed, was run through and his body was dragged to the castle after being bundled up. I mean, I'd say this thing's a foul play, but it's very obvious what was going to happen. Assassination is just always kind of dirty, and Wallenstein's men and him had no chance. And they were massacred without really any way to fight back, which was part of the plan, obviously. But this is kind of low and disgusting for all the service that Wallenstein had done during this war and all the success he had brought, but history isn't always nice. His recent history hadn't been great for the Imperials, but he deserved to go up better than this. But with the deed done, the assassins spent the next day reassuring the loyalty of the troops. Word was sent to Vienna, and Butler chased after Franz Albrecht, who was riding back from seeing Bernhard about the whole defection thing. They also sent a fate letter to Arnhem to try to kidnap him and say Jakku in Saxony, but that didn't come to any real results, which I suppose is good for the Swedes at the moment. And on the outside, the situation was uh, very chaotic. 
The garrison at Chopau had declared for Wallenstein, unaware he was dead, and was quickly forced to surrender when they were offered amnesty and they learned the news of his death. Horn also took imperial garrisons in Swabia, who were caught up in the confusion, enlisting around 3,000 men into the Swedish forces, taking advantage of the chaos and seeming betrayal of their commander. Bernhard also tried to take advantage of the chaos as he rushed to take Eger, hoping to rally the squadron imperial units, but by that point it was too late and the imperials had settled and had more or less established loyalty again. The murder of Wallenstein did result in what many feared, which was the collapse of imperial credit, and the officer corps was split in the aftermath for more than just the money issue. The Italians were key planners, and the Scottish and Irish officers were the ones who did the deed, and the ones who were killed were Bohemians, Northern Germans, or Silesians, so there was a divide on who gained and who lost in this in terms of, you know, people dead. There was a internal base on which group would take the heat, and which would at least come looking at the worst out of it, and that certainly probably didn't help, and the Protestants tried to fan the discontent, taking advantage of the disunity of the Imperials, even if they didn't believe Wallenstein really wanted to defect, well, on the Swedish at least. It would have been interesting to see what would have happened if they did help him slash rescue him, but that is a what if and we will never know, and what ifs are fun, but I don't consider myself studied enough to really look at this situation that way. That sounds weird, I just, there's a whole lot that can go into that. Ferdinand reacted quickly to the massacre, naming his son and heir the commander of the army, and Gallus as his second-in-command. Gallus took responsibility for naming the colonels, which could now only command up to two regiments, as well as try to rationalize and standardize the artillery. But the army mostly stayed the same that Waltine left it, which showed that his framework was good, he just had his own personal issues, and, well, what happened, happened. To help secure loyalty of officers, especially, Wallenstein's lands and properties were handed out, which was estimated to be around 13 million florins. Some of it was also given to settle debts instead of just direct reward, which, like I established in earlier episodes, it was not uncommon for land to be given as a way to settle debt, especially if you didn't have the money at the time. The assassins on the whole benefited immensely, some actively not taking command after this. Some died within the year, but many became rich men, so in this case, betrayal does pay, as history is just kind of like that, with traders getting relatively happy endings for their horrible deeds, especially if they're backed by the right politics or the right political faction. You'll see it again and again throughout history. It's just how it is. And people were executed for siding with Wallenstein, but it was less than many contemporaries reported. Supposedly 24 people were executed, but only a few actually were, notably the commander of Tropau. The others just had their commands revoked, and most were just temporarily imprisoned, like Franz Albrecht, who was captured when he was chased down, obviously. The assassination was officially justified by October 1634, though the reports were finished by July 1634, with very little evidence really in it, as it was hard to unearth any evidence to why he was a traitor, as a lot of it was opinion as we kind of established last time. But to most people's relief, Ferdinand was interested in a witch hunt, and he was just happy to have this threat pass. He wanted to over with so the war can continue to his liking, and maybe get somebody else who would be more active and aggressive, like he was afraid Wallenstein was being, or Wallenstein wasn't being. Then a criticism of the emperor from the agreement Wallenstein wanted was buried, which made him even more happy. Wallenstein's family didn't even try to contest this, his widow being provisioned for at one of the properties, as it probably wouldn't be good for their health if they tried to make this an issue, as Wallenstein had very few allies politically and they would have had no one to call upon. The only really one in the Hazard Court that disagreed with this was one of the councillors, an ally I mentioned way long ago, but his name's not super important, but he resigned his post, although he died shortly afterwards, so the effect that he could could have had was basically negated. 
Well, it was regarded as one of the last mercenary commanders that came out of the Renaissance. Mercenary commanders in the Renaissance were men who led armies of mercenaries, usually split up among several companies, but they worked under somebody else. And their loyalty was to them and not to the state they belonged to. I mean, Wallenstein was still Habsburg, but the idea was he was had more of an aura of personal loyalty than just, I serve the state. He was already slipping in relevance by the time of his death. The death had only reinforced the idea that real power and money came from the Habsburgs, not the commander or general, which most states would prefer. You don't want, you know, a Caesar walking in with his army. That's why most special armies, you know, they're paid by, they're paid for by the state, not by the general. I do agree with Peter Wilson, one of the primary source books that I'm reading, well, not primary sources, narrative source books that I'm reading, where he says, Wallenstein might have won support if he had acted like a spokesperson for an officer's grievances, as Bernhard had done during the Swedish mutiny. But instead, he kind of wallowed his own issues and cut himself off from politics and some of the excellent officers, which guaranteed him little support if he was cornered. But beyond his death, I want to convey my own reflections on the man. It'll be relatively short, but I think you guys want to hear it. On top of all the stuff I covered from the previous episodes, which I think you have an idea about my opinions a little bit, he was definitely the solid core of the Hadburg military during the 1620s. This changing of the army definitely made them a better fighting force in a long war against the Swedes, even if his army had to be reduced in size later on due to the sheer financial cost of it. There was definitely issues with the system, but it established a more reliable way to maintain the army. This was the guy who rose from a lesser officer to command an army of tens of thousands and even commanded the battle that Gustavus got killed in, though that battle was a mess as we covered when that episode was out, so, you know, points, but yeah. He was definitely a skilled general and was able to win battles, and his flaws definitely got in the way by the end of his life, but winning several battles for the Emperor and for the Imperials wasn't something that should be discounted. Again, the way he was killed, I personally disagree with and find it distasteful, but history's not nice, especially to the losers, so not playing politics can bring suffering. But he was still one of the great commanders of the first half of the war. It is also something that should be taken note of. And as 1634 and 1635 heralded the end of this phase of the war, there will be definitely more in the next half of this war. Wow, I said war a lot, didn't I? But next time, the fighting continues, and the Swedes and Imperials start clashing again. I want to thank you for listening in, and hope you're enjoying it. Social media links will be in the description box, or the links themselves. You can email me at 3DECOT at gmail.com. Reminder that I have a Patreon, and thanks those who support me. And to review and spread the word, and I'll see you guys next time.